0: Uh, good afternoon, welcome, and thank you all for joining us here in the room and uh, online. Uh, my name is Aisha Absovi, I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Institute. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome you all and to, um, take, uh, to kick off our flagship event, ME101 Lecture Series. ME101 Lecture Series. Uh, aims to give a comprehensive overview of geopolitical, economic, um, and sociocultural issues in the Middle East. So for that purpose, uh, we aim to deliver eight uh, consecutive lectures um, over uh, the next few weeks. Uh, it will take place every Thursday, starting from today, and we will have a wrap-up session um, on the 12th of October. Uh, we, we designed uh, the lecture series under two themes, uh, one on the geopolitical competition in the region, and the other theme uh, is uh, on the social and economic uh, challenges uh, in the Middle East. To, get, uh, to kick off uh, the lecture series uh, for today, we will have two segments. Uh, The first segment uh, will be an introduction to the series, and the second one will be the first lecture. So um, to introduce the series uh, uh, of today, uh, we do have um, our uh, senior uh, associate uh, director uh, of the Middle East uh, Institute, Mr. Kars who will um, speak about um, why Singapore should care about the developments uh, in the Middle East.
1: And without further ado, I now give the floor to give the introduction to the series. Thanks Aisha, Uh, and welcome everyone here and uh, those who are joining us remotely as well. So as Aisha has uh, pointed out, uh, it's been a carefully curated uh, series of lectures um, and uh, designed to make you both answer as well as think about the question about why should Singaporeans care about what happens in the Middle Sorry, why should yeah, why should Singaporeans care? I mean, I noticed that I said Singaporeans rather than Singapore. I'll come back to that in a short one. Uh, a borrow a phrase from our chairman who uses it every now and then to, to uh, try and answer this question. He always says that much as we try to ignore the police. The Middle East refuses to ignore us. Uh, that's really pithy and succinct, but I think that for today, if I can, we need to modify that slightly. We ought to say that the Middle East isn't ignoring us, and we cannot ignore the Middle so earlier we remember I made a distinction between Singapore and Singaporeans. So let me explain. As a country, we've stepped up our um, you know, we definitely not ignore fact if anything, we actually set up our diplomatic engagement, business and other things for well over a In fact, that's the reason uh, one of the reasons why MEI was established in two thousand and seven. But well, while Singapore moves in this direction, most Singaporeans who are famously or maybe perhaps notoriously very right, considered, have not followed suit. I think one, one odd thing about it is that we can find Singaporeans, you know, in almost every corner of the world in the middle But by and large, for many of us here, you we know, don't care too much what happens on again. Never don't know how it affects us. I think I want you all to consider the events of the past few years and ask yourselves. Have they impacted you? Not just the events in the years, but have they impacted you and how? And that, that's the first key to unlocking this space. I think if you just give it a, a, a fleeting thought just for a second, you will no doubt realize that when it comes to where it hurts most in your know, wallets, there's a war in a faraway part of the world. That has already had an outside effect.
2: The next thing I want you to consider is our
1: size. We have often heard the phrase, and I'm sure uh, Singapore is a yeah. price taker, not a price setter. I don't think it needs much elaboration to accept to reiterate that we are not immune to things that happen to us elsewhere. I mean, we're a small country, uh, things that happen not just in our region, but around the world have an outsized impact. Then there's a third, perhaps more current reason we uh, really consider. I think recently uh, uh, I, I think if you if you've been following the news and perhaps you should the world, you have realized that many our leaders have come back to this team uh, about how the global system is coming under siege. It was at some critical juncture or some variant of that phrase. Let me just quote two examples and just this just week, First, uh our Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Form on Monday is that there's a change in the global consensus around free trade and win-win economic cooperation. The logic of interdependence used to prevail. So we need to think hard about how we continue to strengthen our system of trade and investment. So as as you will undoubtedly know, in, in exactly two weeks we will have an election here as well. Things are heating up, you know, people are talking every day. But uh you know, I amid, amid all the talk about reserves, uh you know how a candidate is independent or his not, etc. Uh, We heard one of the candidates, uh, Sadaman, talk about how he intends to act if he wins the election. Uh, In essence, he said that in response to the troubling state of global affairs, he is deeply concerned about Singapore. So, those are just two examples just this week. The third, We'll likely we come on this Sunday when the Prime Minister delivers his nationally ready, for the most important uh, political speech of the year. Uh, There's always um, a foreign co- component to the speech, so I hope you're listening and taking of that. Basically, all these three points come to perfect. The world has an outsized impact on this, and Italy is no exception. And uh, if you pay attention to what's happening, you will be able to discern the traits and how things connect to each other. And that brings me to, uh, to the purpose of anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How we discern the traits and connect the movies to us and us to the movies. I said earlier that the series of lectures has been carefully created and I handed to uh, Aisha and Misha for putting together the program. Uh, in essence, they both uh, look for answers to the question we are posing now. Why should we care? And as she said, we divided it into two parts the geopolitical competition in the Middle and the challenges the region faces. I don't think I see, need to say much about the geopolitical competition. In Southeast Asia, we are, we are living in a tick of very serious competition between the US and China. Uh, it's enough to say that in the Middle East, they are beginning to experience what we have done for many years. And if you've been following the events there, mm-hmm. you will know that some sort of detente is breaking out in the region. There have been the Abraham talks, recent deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Turkey is also trying to bridge bridges with others. Uh, and we know of late there's been a lot of talk about how even uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel might have performed. There's some skepticism about it, but uh, stranger things have happened. But perhaps of so, well, greater significance are other changes that take good place in the future. We know that uh, possible for we know that climate change is an existential challenge. And uh, one key factor of this is how we and the rest of the world are going to wean ourselves off oil against something that's synonymous with this. And how the big uh, exporters in the Gulf will deal with this issue. <laughs> Singapore <laughs> is a petrol capital, <laughs> for so it's clear that our jobs will be affected. We famously watch every three months when the Energy Market Authority releases uh, forecast for weather our electricity bills are going go up and down. So, the last two years, we've been tearing our hair out, or what's left of our hair out. Like um, so it's our pockets, jobs, and other things that have been affected. But, you know, there's also a plus we I, mean, I also actually do research with, with them, know, looking into renewable energy, the Middle East is going to be, there. you know, I mean, a lot of studies describe it as a region that's going to be worsened by the effects of climate change. I, mean, I recently read a book, The Heat of Killers, and the first thing you think about when it comes to heat, you know, the desert and the Middle East. Right. So uh, you know, we can say that they have some, you know, some uh, pretty big impetus to get going on this, and we can benefit. I'll tie up with them. Many MOUs have been signed with various countries in the aspects of hydrogen and uh, renewable energy because things like they come to fruition. Now uh, you know I mean we can say that you know depending on who you ask, maybe not the climate change explode, maybe but depending on who you ask, we can see the end of oil and gas might be within sites. Uh, and, you know, I mean, some interesting changes are also happening in Saudi Arabia, the U.S. and some other them yeah, have started thinking about know, how are you going to deal with this future without their oil riches, and how are they going to buy football tinnies and the entire of players to come over without the money and all the funds. Many of them are planning to do what we have already done. I mean, Global Financial Center, upscaling for knowledge-based economy, you know? The UAE even has plans for an injured result. so I think you're have see there. But at some point, I didn't know the state, uh, and yeah, the to, to provide the uh, Singapore Airlines and Qatar Airlines have been neck and neck in the competition for the world's best airline for the last few years to keep swimming back right and forth. I think uh, Qatar's airport is also among those that she be mentioned in the same breath as China Airport. So last competition. Right? Uh and uh, but it's not zeros. We are competing with them. They wanna they wanna eat our lunch to be sure. But uh, it's not a zero sum. There's also opportunity. You have a good brand name, and Singapore brand is recognized the world over. Um a lot of us are willing to um, to go to to other countries to seek our fortunes, give our advice, help when we can. And so all this opens up new opportunities for us as well. Maybe in, in a few years, some of you might be working in the dark. I think uh, we do have good advice for you. Protect yourself in balance. the elements. Projected temperature in the UAE today will be the high of 49 degrees centigrade. Well, relative humidity at 80%. The wet bulb temperature is going be above 30 degrees. That's in the danger zone of humans. Now, you know, in order to transform the economies, the country, the to also have to transform the societies. And this is something that's very important to us. The, 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 best to mm-hmm. the main targets for these changes are the populations themselves. The health the, the region, much of the Philippines actually is in uh, you know, a good position. It has what we call a demographic, a lot of people are aged, you know, right. So when you know, dividend, you know, I mean, that means a young, energetic population. Contrasted, it, contrast it with Singapore, you're going to be super Asian, not just Asian society. that's just seven years Um And so you know, I mean, the, the changes that the, the old countries and others are making have a lot to do with was feeling, the uh, aspirations of the younger populations, the kind of lives they want to leave, the jobs they want to have, and so on. I, I don't know whether you followed the news, but last weekend, uh, a barbie opened up in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's uh, unthinkable. A few years ago, we couldn't watch a movie Saudi Arabia, let alone barbie, which has been banned. In, several countries including Now in Saudi Arabia, you can even go to a rave concert. I think that some uh, famous American sicklers and whatever people call that have, have concerts. All this is unthinkable of this few shoppers. So I mean that's aimed as in one sense that their own populations and we want to make sure that countries are attractive, can pursue the dreams of their other people and so on. Uh but there's a lot of dimension to this. Uh, Arabia is a birthplace of Islam. Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Indonesia and Malaysia are mostly majority countries. Indonesia with the most largest Muslim population. Singapore has a really big Muslim population too. Arabia is a birthplace in the and has a special place in our states. And their practices have percolated to this region in the past. So these changes um, way, it is worth watching to see whether we will be affected somehow as well. And that's another way we should pay, why we should pay attention to this. Apart from the other populations the old populations, I mean there's another reason that countries in and elsewhere are making all these changes is to make themselves attractive to foreign talent. I think some in the product this term, but you know, there's no doubting that uh, we are in a race of global talent. Right? And uh, con- we need to continue to make sure we quality attracting kind of people here you know, who can help us to innovate, uh, start up new companies, create new jobs, and provide the kind of lives that Singaporeans right. want. And in the sense that we have competition, we need to see what the competition does not order for us to get. And it's not just the Gulf. Uh, Israel is known as a startup nation. Singapore is on, that has, that has often been called the innovation nation. Everyone knows lots of new ones I imagine. We do things differently from the Israelis, but there is no doubt that we compare those how to build this culture of innovation, entrepreneurship, which um, is I think in the last innovation cities index uh maybe a month ago in the next seven, which is an you know, incredible feat. Considering our small size and considering that you know this innovation drive is not exactly. Difficult. But I think today Israel headlines for another different reason, you know, a growing fight over what kind of country we want. We ought to uh, you know, keep a breath of developments there. Uh, we, will, you know, we are in the midst of something called Forward Singapore. The shots are the kind of country we want to be in the two years. So we want to keep a press of development there and learn from you know, what is happening. Egypt, Jordan, Iran, Turkey, you know, fantastic uh, things going on there, important things, all of these will impact us in some way or right? other. So it's not just the DAO and the Jewish, we often talk about as if they're almost exclusive to the DAO. I mean, to the youth. There are things happening in Egypt and elsewhere that are also of great importance and interest to us. Sharon uh, always reminds me that I have to keep to 15 minutes. I'm going to read the rules a little bit and and indulge in maybe another one or two minutes' time. Uh, we often say that Singapore will make friends with anybody as long as they want to make friends with us. Mm-hmm. No exception. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's becoming more and more important to us, creating opportunities to grow our economy and enlarge our diplomatic spheres. And jointly, technology is one of the most pressing issues we face. We have signed a lot of agreements on renewable energy, but we also signed agreements on things that like to getting to be more and more important to us I as mean, a very very blood-bin country. But I I mean I, I don't want to, to test your patience anymore beyond the 15 minutes that I've got it. I think I still have one minute left. So I will just remind you that there are nine sessions of, um as Aisha pointed out will be carefully created in two broad areas uh, the first eight will hopefully help you pull the threads together. And the ninth, if you have questions after that, um, this will be a free talk. So I'm going to try and make it. At least 75% of, of the sessions. And I encourage uh, you know, uh, people themselves to come here in person. I know it's an early hour review. But uh, you know, you, 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 uh, join us, we won't be on Zoom. We um, you know, talking, you know the whole gamut of, of, of things that uh, are being tackled, especially by the truth. So let uh, me welcome you once again. I hope you'll find it interesting, and, uh, engaging, and enlightening. I'll now hand over to my colleague, Dr. Uh, John Saman a um, Senior Research Fellow, uh, who will talk about uh, the Great Power Competition in the business. And this uh, session will be moderated by my other colleague, Dr. Thomas Chee, who is a Research Fellow at Right, Thank you very much, and I hope you find it um, a Exercise. exercise.
3: Hey, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the opening remarks delivered by our Senior Associate Director. Mr. Kyle's um, And welcome to the first lecture of the ME 101 series organized by the Middle East Institute, MEI. My name is Clemens Che, a research fellow at the Institute, and I will be today's moderator. Uh, the opening theme of this series revolves around great power competition or geopolitical competition, as was introduced earlier on, uh, on which today's presentation will elaborate with reference to the foreign policy agenda of the United States, Russia, and China, and how rivalries among these powers have an impact on the Middle East. So, recent trends in the region have indicated in particular that the Gulf Arab states are weaning themselves away from global dependence on Washington. By engaging with a variety of other partners, and this pattern accompanies a flurry of Chinese diplomatic initiatives in the Middle East and these are aimed at growing countries closer to Beijing's orbit. In April last year, the six Gulf states also abstained a vote in a vote to suspend Russia in the UN Human Rights Council. And amid the ongoing russia ukraine conflict, interestingly, Dubai has become a wartime power for the Russians. So it is again such a backdrop that my colleague, Dr. John Lusaman, will deliver today's lecture and I'll provide a... An introduction of his profile, uh, Saman is a senior research fellow at MEI, and his latest book entitled New Military Strategies in the Gulf was just released a week ago, and many congratulations on that. His profile rests on a wealth of experience in the Middle East and his strategic affairs ranging from security issues to things like Israeli Israel's security and disorder, relationship with Islam. His extensive experience in the military domain is also proven by his positions at the NATO Defense College from twenty eleven to sixteen, and also later at the UAE National Defense College from twenty sixteen to twenty one as an associate professor in strategic studies. So, without further ado, please allow me to hand it over to my colleague
2: John. Thank you very much, Premas, uh, nice and. Uh, uh, And I think you can now see the, the slides. Is there an echo of the microphone? We cannot have uh, both. Yeah. uh, Okay. So I'll uh, go directly to the topic of the day, which, uh, which is as Finance uh, uh, mentioned, the uh, great cup, great power competition. Okay. so great power competition. Looking at the, the, let's say, the triangle between the US, uh, China, and, and Russia, and I have basically three objectives with this lecture. And obviously, uh, uh, due to the time constraint, uh, I won't get into all the details of the policies of those three countries in the region. But what I like. You to uh, think about for the next uh, 40, 45 minutes with this lecture uh, is three things. The first is the return of the narrative. Because today, and maybe even more in Singapore, Southeast Asia, uh, great power competition is everywhere. We discuss that uh, in media, in uh, any discussion at the US or elsewhere. Uh, But this is rather new, or at least a recent phenomenon in the Middle East. Uh, For a while, uh, it wasn't uh, the the central theme in the Middle East. Most of the things that happened in the Middle East in the last 20 years related to terrorism, the so-called war on terror that led the U.S. to uh, uh, wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and most recently uh, to the uh, coalition against the Islamic State. So what we are seeing in the last five years is the return of the It's not completely new; it's the return. Return why? Because uh, we, uh, if we look at the historical perspective, there was this great power competition back in the Cold War era. It was mostly not only uh, between the U.S. and the USSR. China didn't really play a role. I'll come back to that later, but. That's the first thing that I would like us to keep in mind uh, for our discussion. The second thing is great power competition and, and, and the Middle East should be conceived as a two-way street. And that would be also one thing that I uh, explained here, uh, which is that the great powers, so here when we talk about the great powers, we'll be talking about these three countries, U.S., Russia and China. Uh, they have their agendas. They have their policies that are shaping uh, the competition in the in the region. But obviously, uh, local actors also have their own agents, and they will also use this great power competition as leverage to play one against the other. Uh, and that's something we should not forget. That this is not just uh, great powers projecting their competition in the Middle East, and the Middle East is just a passive actor in all of that. That's more complex. Uh, Finally, one thing which I'd like us to do systematically here is to question how we measure power. Uh, Because there's a lot of discussions about China becoming a major player in the Middle East, China replacing the US. And I think uh, if we want to go beyond the media discourse, and media narrative, we need to uh, look at how do we measure uh, that power. Uh, the most, uh, the simplest way to measure power uh, here, I would say, is what we call the time model, which is to look at the diplomatic engagement, uh, what is the influence in terms of foreign policy, in terms of uh, diplomacy, uh, by these great powers in the region. The second aspect is information. Uh, How is this country uh, influential in terms of shaping uh, the narrative, the information that is provided to the public opinion in terms of perceptions? The third one is maybe the most old-fashioned way to measure power, which is the military. Uh, When we discuss the US, China, uh, Russia, uh, how many soldiers do they have in the Middle East? Uh, how uh, many uh, weapons systems are they selling to uh, the region, and so on. And finally, another way, uh, which is uh, uh, very important, is economy. And this might be also uh, the most obvious one, which is trade. How important trade is uh, for those countries in relations to the Middle East. Having said that, I'm going to start with the US uh, because uh, my main argument, uh, I'll say it, uh, from the beginning, is that the US uh, is still, uh, for the near future, uh, the biggest uh, power in the region. And that uh, uh, I don't believe, and I'm not the, one, the only one on this, uh, no, I don't believe that the Ch- China is in the process of replacing uh, the U.S. in the Middle East anytime soon. Uh, to understand the current state of U.S. policy in the region, we need to uh, go back into history and to look at what are the priorities and what is what shaped the uh, U.S. policy in the region. Uh, in Singapore, when we talk about the Middle East, we tend to look first and foremost uh, uh, at the goals. In the U.S., when we talk about the Middle East, it's first and foremost about Israel. That's the first element that comes into the discussion. And that relates to a special relationship that the U.S. uh, has been cultivating uh, with Israel uh, for the past, uh, past decades. That relationship didn't start right after the creation of Israel in 1948. At first, actually, the uh, U.S. Uh, administration, the U.S. government, uh, was uh, skeptical of the uh, Israeli project. It was actually the U.S. itself that recognized Israel before uh, the U.S. Eventually, the ties between Israel and the U.S. grew in the early 60s. Here, this is a picture of the first visit uh, of uh, David Gurion the, on the left. Uh, to the White House in 1960, visiting President Eisenhower for the first time, just before Eisenhower was replaced uh, by uh, John Kennedy. Uh, This is really the, the, the first, the starting point of that special relationship. Uh, that relationship turned also into a military relationship we'll, i'll come back to that just to give you some numbers but Israel today for the past uh, several decades has been the first recipient of U.S military aid we're talking about three billion dollars uh, roughly speaking uh, each year um so that's the first point the second point is what we call the carter doctrine and dual containment so this relates to Jimmy Carter, who was a uh, US president in the late 70s. And during one of his final speeches, the uh, State of the Union in uh, uh, January uh, 1980, Carter expl- explained that any threat in the, uh, to the Strait of Homes in the Persian Gulf any uh, disruption of the uh, the maritime uh, communication lines uh, in that area would be considered as a threat to the U.S. security interests. In other words, uh, Carter was articulating for the first time the idea that the stability of the Gulf is the U.S. national security. And that's something quite significant. The idea that uh, what's happening in the Gulf is not just a matter for the Gulf; it's a matter for the U.S. because of the economic interest uh, for the U.S., but uh, well, eventually also it becomes a security interest. This led uh, to the idea that the U.S. has to provide security stability for the region. Three years after that speech by Carter, the U.S. Central Command uh, was created. I'll come back to that. This is the military command in charge of operations in the Middle East, and which, uh, in some ways, has been the most active uh, regional command uh, of uh, U.S. forces uh, over the past uh, three decades. In addition to, the, to this doctrine, there was the idea of dual containment. Dual containment meaning containment of two countries: Iran, which, after 79, uh, became an Islamic Uh, Republic, and Iraq, which at that time was governed by Saddam Hussein. We don't do that now, it's uh, one single containment, because Iraq, uh, under the regime of Saddam Hussein collapsed after the invasion of uh, the US in 2003. But this idea of containing any uh, regional power is still uh, relevant. Uh, The third point which I wanted to make is what we've seen in the 2000s, the so-called neoconservative moment. Uh, And uh, for those uh, of you who may be too young to remember this period, uh, after 9-11, after the attacks uh, of 2001 against the U.S., you had a strong uh, movement within U.S. governments Uh, that believed that democracy, uh, the lack of democracy in the Middle East was the issue, that uh, the the lack of democracy led to authoritarianism, led to radicalization. And as a result, the neoconservatives who were uh, present in the Bush administration at that time promoted the idea of uh, spreading the democracy model in the area. This this was obviously to start with Iraq in 2003, but eventually that uh, completely uh, failed. This was maybe one of the most ambitious moments uh, for good or bad reasons uh, in terms of U.S. interventions in the Middle East, uh, and because it was the most ambitious moment, this led to another period that we are still living, I would say, today which is a moment of U.S. fatigue. The U.S., uh, starting under Obama, later on with Trump, and now with Biden, wants at any cost to disengage from the Middle East. Obama was the first to express, it. he said uh, during the campaign in 2008, that it's time to do nation-building at at home. Uh, In other words, to stop nation-building in the Middle East and to do it at home. Trump said it in a less sophisticated way uh, by uh, proclaiming the idea of America first, but that's, that was the same uh, mindset to decrease the presence of the U.S. from the region. Biden is, in a way, following the same narrative, the idea that the U.S. should uh, reduce or should uh, recalibrate its presence in the Middle East. And as of now, if you want to understand uh, what is the the, the the strategy of the U.S. in, in the Middle East, uh, one good way is to, to check, uh, and most of these the speeches are uh, available online, is to check the, the hearings uh, in, in front of Congress of members of the uh, Biden administration. And usually when it comes to the Middle East, uh, in the last three, four years, there have been three clear priorities. Counter-terrorism, and here uh, this includes uh, the Islamic State, this includes Al-Qaeda, so uh, nothing new, this has been one of the key priorities over the last uh, three decades. It includes Iran, uh, and that's also not, nothing new. I mean, uh, the, uh, the issue of Iran since 1979 has always been at the top of the uh, U.S. agenda in the Middle East. But something that was added very recently, and which was added at the end of the Trump administration, is great power competition, and this is uh, this is clearly uh, the, the novelty here: the fact that the U.S. now considers that one of its strategic priorities in the Middle East is this great power competition, and here they include uh, uh, Russia as well as uh, China. Now, as I said earlier, what's important for us is to measure power and to have and the ability to quantify it. Uh, this is a uh, um, breakdown of U.S. troops uh, in the region as of 2023. So I checked uh, yesterday the uh, military balance, which is this annual annual survey of uh, armed forces uh, in the world. And roughly, you have about forty. 40,000 US troops in the Middle East. Uh, Most of these troops are actually in the globe, uh, with Kuwait and Qatar having the biggest uh, biggest, uh, military bases. Uh, In the case of Kuwait, you could argue that this is uh, a legacy uh, of the invasion of Kuwait uh, in uh, 1990 by Iran. But this is still quite significant. I mean, as I said, the U.S. talks about disengagement and the world uh, sees or perceives the U.S. as a, uh, this country that wants to uh, uh, get out of the Middle East. But we're talking about uh, a country that still has about 40,000 troops. Keep in mind also that there are ongoing operations. Uh, in Syria, you still have uh, hundreds of troops uh, from the U.S. which are conducting the operation inherent in the which is this operation targeting the Islamic State. Uh, I included also troops in Turkey, uh, which are part of the uh, US troops, which are technically part of Europe, because uh, in, the, uh, in, the US, uh, uh, in the US way to uh, uh, categorize the Middle East, uh, Turkey is uh, in Europe as a NATO country. Uh, in addition to that, this is just uh, a picture, uh, a map of uh, the Middle East and the military bases. Do not really take uh, the numbers of troops, uh, because this this is a, a map from 2019, so the, the numbers are not uh, updated. But I think what's interesting for us here is the locations, the fact that the U.S. military is basically everywhere, almost everywhere in the region. So I think it's uh, a map that tells you about uh, how uh, the, the U.S. military footprint is still uh, relevant uh, today. As I said earlier, uh, the, uh, the key also when it comes to the U.S.-Israel uh, relationship, this special relationship, is the military aid. Historically, there were two pillars uh, to U.S. aid to Israel: there was a military pillar and an economic pillar. But as it was said uh, in introduction by uh, our deputy uh, director, Karl, uh Israel is a, now a big economy, a vibrant economy, so uh, it stopped receiving economic aid from the U.S. for a long time all the, the US aid to Israel now is uh, for uh, military uh, purposes we're talking about uh, 3 000, 3 billion 300 million uh, dollars uh, which is very significant obviously for any country uh, in addition to that uh, you have also uh, US uh, US support to Israel's missile defense uh, uh, initiative such as Uh, I don't know. So, this is for uh, the U.S. Now, let's move to uh, to the second uh, big player uh, in the area, and that is uh, China. Uh, China is a relatively new partner uh, in uh, the Middle East. I I hear a lot of people, uh, especially in Singapore, insisting that China has been in the Middle East for a long time. But this was insignificant at the strategic level. Uh, One of the the, the key indicators is that most of the countries in the region actually recognized China or the PRC uh, only in 1990. Uh, Most of the countries uh, in the world for instance recognized China at that time. Uh, And Israel actually did it uh, uh, the first in uh, if I remember correctly in 1950. But what's important for us is that the strategic dimension of the relationship between China and the Middle East really grew uh, in the last decade. And you could argue that there was achieving being effect. Uh, There was a clear momentum after uh, he rose to power in 2013. Uh, and this was related uh, first and foremost uh, to the economic uh, dimension, and infrastructure, and uh, digital uh, networks. There are different aspects here. To uh, first, uh, the, the, the biggest uh, partner at first in the region was Israel. Uh, Huawei uh, until today has one unique research and development center in the area, and that is in Israel. Because China uh, looked uh, at the Israeli tech industry, and in particular uh, to the uh, uh, to the startup uh, ecosystem in Tel Aviv, uh, as a, a very uh, important partner. So, uh, we've seen in the last years China investing and China buying uh, several big uh, Israeli tech companies, in particular in the cybersecurity domain. That obviously led to tensions because, if you remember, I just said Israel has this special relationship uh, with uh, the US. That uh, led uh, the US to wonder. How far uh Israel is willing to go with China in that uh, domain. Uh, and that's something that has been also uh, on the agenda for the Gulf uh, countries. Uh, you have six uh members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, so Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, Oman, uh Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates. All these countries have selected y for the development of their 5G network. Uh, and they got uh, pressure from uh, the US from the beginning to not uh, select a way but they, uh, they insisted on doing so. Uh, that's uh, a significant uh, decision. This, this is the reason, for instance, here I took uh, this picture. You uh, may recognize Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, celebrating widely. I don't think you will see that in a lot of US uh, partners uh, across the world. Uh, I don't think you can see that anywhere in Europe and in, in the Middle East. Uh, you, it's probably only in the uh, UAE uh, these days that you would see that. And that shows you how uh, things are changing. Uh, the fact that this uh, Chinese presence uh, is is becoming uh, obvious uh, in all domains. Uh, in addition to that, and the map might be a bit uh, difficult to see in the back. Uh, but one thing which I wanted to show also with this map uh, is the fact that China is involved in the uh, ports infrastructures in the region. In uh, it's present in several Gulf. Uh, ports infrastructures, Uh, China uh, or Chinese entities uh, have invested uh, in Abu Dhabi port, in uh, Hamad port in Qatar, uh, in Dukun port in Oman, uh, and maybe more importantly, in Haifa port in Israel. It's why I say more importantly, because in Haifa port, next to uh, the uh, uh, civilian merchant side of Haifa port, You have a military uh, site, a naval facility in Haifa, where the US Navy uh, regularly uh, visits. And obviously, the US Navy was not really happy to hear and to uh, learn that uh, from now on, Haifa port would be operated by a Chinese entity. This is also a a significant uh, phenomenon, significant trend. Uh, until now uh, Israel despite threats from the US Navy that they would cease visiting Haifa uh, Israel did not uh, cancel uh, its partnership uh, with China on uh, this the management of the port in addition to that uh, as I said this became first and foremost about economy about trade and uh, for a long time uh, If you were asking people uh, in the US, they were dismissing that uh, Chinese presence, saying this is just about business, this is just about oil, Uh, there isn't anything strategic here. Except that uh, in the past five years, we saw uh, China uh, raising its profile in the military domain as well. Uh, It's about mostly on-sales until now, uh, and we're talking about uh, drones. Here, this is a drone, uh, one of the drones that uh, China has been selling to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, China has also been selling uh, ballistic missiles to Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Uh, Actually, Saudi Arabia started uh, buying Chinese ballistic missiles in the 80, even before recognizing the POS. Uh, but on the, on the, the next uh, picture, you have uh, the uh, light uh, training fighter jets from China that uh, the UAE announced uh, that it would uh, buy uh, last year. This is unprecedented. This is the first time a world country which usually buys uh, Western fighter jets, either British, French, or American fighter jets, would buy a Chinese fighter jet. This is a light uh, training fighter jet. So nothing compared to a, uh, an American F 35 or a French Papa. But still, this is a big message, a big signal. Uh, and most recently, you may have seen this was uh, mentioned in the South China Morning Post. Uh, the UAE and China will, uh, will organize their first joint military drill. And this is, uh, a significant step. So we see that more and more, uh, China is becoming a military actor. Now, uh, as I said, we need to quantify all of this. So, uh, this is just a snapshot of Saudi Arabia, uh, arms imports. Uh, I don't have time to go to all the countries in the region, but Saudi Arabia being the the country that spends the biggest uh, amount on the defense, I think this is the most relevant piece. Mm -hmm. This is the breakdown uh, of arms suppliers uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, If you look at the last column, so the total... Uh, over the last decade uh, one one thing that is the most obvious is that the united states is by far uh, the uh, biggest the uh, uh, biggest uh, supplier uh, followed uh, by france uh what's remarkable here is that uh, china is not even on the top 3 uh, it's not on the podium. Uh, you have uh, here uh, the United Kingdom, you have Germany, uh, and then you have uh, China. So Germany, which by the way uh, was uh, very reluctant about uh, arms sales with uh, with Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi uh, affair, uh, still is a, a major supplier and a bigger supplier of uh, weaponry to Saudi Arabia than China. So it tells you about uh, the scale uh, of the arms we're talking about. This is, in a way, over-out. uh So this is uh, for the military. Finally, a uh, thing on the diplomatic dimension for uh, China, because this is also something uh, quite significant. Uh, in particular, uh, as mentioned earlier, the fact that for the first time, China brokered the deal uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran last March. This is a, a rather new uh, thing, and it tells us about how China wants to play a role in the uh, in the region. Uh, but we have to, uh, to wait because until now there has no there has been no significant uh, achievement since that deal between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. There were uh, big speculations that this could lead to a settlement of the conflict in Yemen. Uh, unfortunately, until now there has not been. Uh, Any serious breakthrough on this form. Uh, let me move very quickly uh, to uh, the third act, Russia. Uh, and I would clearly put Russia in a different category because Russia is not uh, a great power in the same way that um, the US and uh, China. You will see here the reasons. And that's why I, I, I would call Russia a spoiler in the Middle East. It has the ability uh, to uh, challenge uh, the uh, status quo, but it doesn't have the ability to replace uh, the US and it doesn't have uh, the ability uh, to follow the trajectory of China. Some of the reasons for that I mean, Russia has a limited diplomatic and trade presence, it's not a big trade partner uh, of the region. Uh, And in terms of diplomatic influence, uh, it is relatively uh, modest. Uh, That's a legacy of the Cold War. The Gulf states, in particular, uh, were uh, for the U.S. during the Cold War. So as a result, Russia was not not a strong diplomatic partner even after uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, This is also something that you see at the military level. Uh, most of the presence, the, the biggest presence uh, of Russia in the region is in Syria. Uh, here you have a map where you see uh, the two uh, locations, naval base and air base, of uh, uh, Russia uh, in uh, inside Syria. And I'll come back to that because a lot of the uh, Israeli policy when it comes to uh, Russia is driven by the russian presence in syria because when you're israel if you see the presence of uh, uh, russia inside syria that plays a major role in how you consider uh, your russia policy having said that there is a significant presence of russia at the information uh, level and i would argue that this is uh, uh this is the added value of russia probably more than china which is not really visible in terms of media uh, coverage in uh, the Middle East uh, or uh, the US. Uh, Russia today, or Russia Leon you know, uh, in uh, Arabic, is uh, a very important uh, player when it comes to the media in the region. A lot of the, a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the Arab public uh, will uh, watch or read uh, the websites. And this is, uh, this is a significant uh, asset for Russia, to spread its narrative when it comes to the war in Syria, but also more recently to the war in Ukraine. Uh, you could argue that uh, the role that Russia today plays, uh, the US has never been able to do that. The US developed its own Arabic channel, uh, al uh, but that never... Uh, reached the level of uh, success that Russia today uh, has gained uh, in the Arab world. And that's, I, I think, uh, the, uh, uh, the interesting thing about the Russian presence. In addition to that, uh, there's Putin's appeal in the Middle East. Uh, Putin is seen as a very popular figure. When you do check the polls uh, in uh, Arab countries, Putin is usually uh, receiving positive uh, reviews. Uh, This is, um, on the left, a map of Cairo, where, uh, during the visit of uh, uh, President Putin, uh, with a message of uh, welcome in Arabic. And here, on the right, uh, you have uh, a a picture, which I think is an important one, which is uh, the G20 summit, right after the Khashoggi, uh assassination. You may remember that journalist from Saudi Arabia that was beheaded inside the Saudi consulate in Israel. Uh, one month later, you have uh, the G20 summit. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, is persona non grata. Nobody in the, the Western uh, governments wants to meet with him they all consider this toxic. The only head of state that goes directly to Mohammed bin Salman, 10, uh, 10 uh, one months after the assassination of Khashoggi, and gives him a high five, is Vladimir Putin. And I think this tells you about uh, also the level, the, the importance of the personality and uh, uh, how uh, uh, Putin was able uh, to build uh, personal ties uh, with the leaders in the region. And that explains why, until today, there's a, a rather sympathetic or positive view of Putin in the region. Now, to conclude on, uh, on this uh, uh, overview of great power competition in the Middle East, as I said, it's a two-way street, and that's the reason why I, I wanted to add uh, one section on how the Middle East looks at the, uh, the great power population. And there are several themes here. The first one is that the Middle East, and when I say the Middle East, the Arab countries, uh, Iran or uh, Israel, all consider China as a strategy partner. They don't want to dismiss the presence of China. They, they, none of the countries in the region uh, oppose uh, the presence of, of China. The reason being that uh, we consider China as a major company that you cannot afford to ignore. Uh, the, this is uh, something uh, that I will tell you about the uh, the perception uh, of the public uh, in uh, the Arab world, and it might be difficult for you uh, uh, in the back to see, but what's important here uh, is that Arab public opinion has generally a more favorable view of China than of the US. That's uh, That could be uh, shocking, the fact that the US is the most uh, uh, present uh, power in the region, but at the same time uh, the public has a better opinion of China. That means that when you have uh, Arab leaders uh, uh, Announcing new partnerships with China, this is not uh, going against uh, the perception of the public. It's you can argue that this will rally the public opinion because uh, the perception is that China uh, is in a better position to than uh, the U.S. Uh, so here you see the question uh, uh, to the public was. Uh, is the US or China a critical threat? And usually uh, it's the US which is seen as a bigger threat. So, again, that's uh, that's something uh, to be worried about if you're uh, US uh, today. So, this is uh, with regards to uh, to China and the role of perceptions. Uh, when it comes to uh, the Middle East and the war in Ukraine, you have a similar phenomenon. Uh, from the beginning, the Middle Eastern countries considered that the war in Ukraine was the war of the West, uh, that this was another conflict. Uh, this was a conflict between Russia and Western countries, and they had no, um, not, no interest in joining one side against another. Uh, this is uh, uh, the same thing here, the perception the, the uh of Russia in the world and you can see that the middle East here is not very different from uh, uh, from Asia or uh, Africa. It joins uh, probably most of the, most of the countries in the world uh, by by arguing for neutrality. Uh, this is the perception. but at the level of policy, uh, this is more complicated, obviously, because initially the uh, countries uh, in the region wanted to maintain that neutrality, both countries do not apply sanctions, for instance, uh, against Russia. Uh, as Clemens mentioned uh, in his introduction, uh, they maintained the diplomatic uh, posture uh, rather, uh, rather favorable to Russia within the UN, but more and more we saw them Uh, understanding that it cannot uh, really, uh, we cannot maintain that uh, neutrality. Uh, Israel, in particular, uh, after being extremely quiet at first, eventually supported uh, Ukraine. Uh, And uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, which was for a long time uh, hesitant and reluctant to play uh, a role on Ukraine, eventually uh, welcomed uh, uh, President Zelensky uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, at the last uh, Arab League summit, uh, and most recently organized uh, a, a summit uh, which uh, on Ukraine in uh, Saudi Arabia. So we see that uh, the Middle East is uh, coming to the re- realization that it's quite difficult to stay neutral uh, on Ukraine, and that the more the conflict. Continues the more they have to uh, uh, to choose a side, and that at the end of the day, uh, Russia is not their uh, biggest partner. Uh, The US is uh, by far their biggest security partner. This uh, leads me to a a final point here, which is US primacy. Uh, A lot of the uh, calculus, a lot of, a lot of the uh, uh, strategy of Middle Eastern countries today, vis-à-vis the Great Power Competition, uh, uh, relates to the idea that U.S. primacy uh, is ending, that the, the era of U.S. leadership uh, is over uh this is based on things which are which have been said by the U.S. As mentioned earlier, the U.S has made more no secret that it has new priorities for its commitments. Uh, the U.S wants to uh, shift to uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific, uh, and the war in Ukraine is also putting new priorities in Europe rather than uh, in the Middle East, this is also the realization from Middle Eastern countries that the U.S. is no longer involved on some key diplomatic files. Uh, two examples here: Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon has been uh, suffering from a major uh, economic political crisis uh, in the last years, and the U.S. has hardly uh, shown a, a major interest uh, in solving the uh, Lebanese crisis. Same thing for Palestine, uh, if you check uh, the uh, statements from the White House anytime time there's a conflict between Israel and Palestinian organizations such as Hamas. Most of the time it's all about Israel's security and there's no real effort or no real appetite in the US to uh, relaunch uh, peace efforts. In a sense, that the US uh, lost interest and lost confidence that there could be a window of opportunity for a peace process between Israel and Palestinians. Uh, And this finally relates to something that we'll be discussing in other uh, lectures, which is that Middle East powers now want also uh, to dictate their foreign policy on their own terms. And that's their quest for strategic autonomy. They want to be able to decide on themselves. They are more and more uh, reluctant to accept U.S. Uh, guidance, U.S. leadership. So they are also uh, playing yeah, the card of uh, uh, the declining uh, U.S. presence, because that also uh, serves their own agenda. So uh, this is my last slide, the takeaways before we uh, uh, um, move to the Q&A session, uh, four main takeaways, uh, the first one is that no matter what we think about US disengagement, uh, the uh, new priorities uh, from Washington, the US remains the biggest power in the yes. minutes, uh, though its focus is clearly decreased. But if you compare, relatively speaking, there is nothing uh, at the moment that can match the U.S. presence in the Middle East. Uh, China uh, is not at the moment expressing uh, the ambition to, uh, to match uh, that military footprint uh, or that diplomatic footprint. Uh, so this is the reason why I say it's still the biggest power. Having said that, uh, China is clearly uh, raising its profile so that uh, not only at the economic domain, but also in the military and economic uh, dimensions. Uh, And uh, the the deal uh, that uh, China negotiated with Saudi Arabia and Iran is something that, uh, to be fair, was not conceivable a few years ago. That's not something that uh, experts would have considered seriously. Uh, that uh, you would have uh, Saudi and Iranian foreign ministers uh, going to Beijing to sign an agreement. Uh, Russia's influence remains objectively limited. As I said, uh, it's not a big military actor, it's not an economic power in the Middle East, so its influence uh, is decreased. Uh, It still has uh, some clouds, especially when it comes to the narrative uh, through its uh, propaganda or its information campaign in the region, and finally, as I said, the regional powers, and here I, I'm talking mostly about Israel and Gulf states, perceive the U.S. as a declining power. They feel like uh, the U.S. is no longer uh, the uh, uh, the uh, superpower. Able to shape uh, the the uh, regional uh, I mean, regional gains, and so they see their partnership with China as a leverage. As I said, it's a two way street. They uh, they will use that partnership also to force the US to be more present and to uh, accept their own demands. So what this means is that we will see more and more a volatile uh, environment in the Middle East. It's going to be probably uh, uh, more uncertain uh, than before, but uh, probably for us uh, for the discussion, it's probably more exciting in a sense. I'll stop here. Uh, we have, I think, about 20 minutes for the QA. Thank you very much for your attention.
3: Thank you, John Lu, for your wonderful presentation, which you expertly synthesized Uh, the positions, the postures, and the important personalities of the external powers in the region, the Middle East. Um, Now we have arrived at the Q&A segment, so I would like to invite those physically present in the room to uh, pose your questions. Uh, We can of course hand you the mic and you can ask John directly. And also I'd like to invite those uh, who are online, on Zoom, to type in your questions in the chat box so that we can address them as well. Uh,
1: while everyone
3: goes online and then basically present are putting on their thinking caps, maybe I will start off the Q&A segment with a couple of questions on my own. Uh, the first question being about you know, the influence of China, because I think in one of your slides, you showed that in terms of the arm sales, you know China does not rank even in the top three uh, you know, amongst suppliers. So, would you say that China's you know influence is confined or unlimited to the area of commercial interest, the area of economic interest?
2: Well, it's there. There are several uh, aspects uh, to, to question. the question. Uh, uh, the first one relates to the uh, added value. Uh, and at the moment, there's a clear added value uh, of Chinese companies, Chinese products uh, seen from the Gulf when it comes to uh, digital networks, when it comes to infrastructures, uh, same thing for Israel. Uh, they, uh, they go for uh, Chinese operators, uh, mostly for uh, business, uh, business reasons. Uh, the field of on-sales is a bit different because it's it's probably more politicized uh, than uh, other uh, domains, uh, other um, fields of business activity. So at the moment, uh, Gulf states uh, are more and more buying uh, Chinese products, uh, such as the WPs and uh, uh, fighter jets. And maybe if we uh, look at this uh, breakdown for Saudi Arabia in two thousand. 33, so 10 years from now, we may see something different. Maybe we'll see a uh, Chinese presence much bigger. Uh, but that relates also to a, an objective uh, uh, fact, which is that the Chinese military systems uh, do not have the operational uh, attractiveness uh, that uh, the US uh, or uh, European system have. Uh, At the end of the day, all states, which spend a lot of money on uh, the military, they still want to have the best product uh, on the market. uh, Because there's an element of uh, pride. Saudi Arabia and UAE apparently want to be able to say, we want you to buy the F-35 because this is the best fighter jet on Earth. This is the most expensive one, but we have the ability to do that. So we'll do it. And China doesn't have something that could, uh, at least in terms of the um, operational value, compete So I think this is one of the main reasons why they are not so uh, uh, visible. Uh, so what I I would say we'll see uh, at least in the next years is that China being present on some niche capabilities, uh, some elements where. The Gulf countries cannot buy from the West. So in the US, uh, if the US don't don't want to sell them ballistic design, they go to China and so on. Uh, but this this creates a lot of uncertainties uh, because uh, how do you uh, operate when you have uh, US and Chinese products at the same time? This is already an issue in the civilian domain, but in the military domain, this creates a headache uh, for military uh, decision-making. But so that's the way we anticipate things for the moment. Thanks, John Lu. Uh, I think as consumers,
3: of course, you yes. want to the best product to not only for your own usage, but also to show off to a certain extent, which brings me to my second question before I open it up to the floor, which is about you know continuing from what you, you answered earlier uh, to talk about Europe. European countries sales, arms sales to, to, to the Middle East and in your slide, the same slide that showed the numbers, uh, France and the UK uh, were both important suppliers and France of course historically has also been uh, helping Israel with, with that industry, with military domain as well. So how would you characterize? The role
2: of both France and Britain in this case. Thank you very much, Clemens. Uh, it's so generous from you uh, in a lecture on great power competition to discuss the European, the old European powers. Uh, and uh, but it's what's interesting here is that one thing which I argue sometimes uh, in uh, discussions on the uh, U.S.-China competition and how. Uh, the US uh, is losing uh, influence in the Gulf is that the country that at the moment, for instance, is gaining uh, from that is not China. It's actually countries like France. The UAE uh, didn't uh, replace uh, US uh, fighter jets because I don't know if you're familiar with the mm-hmm. crisis. 2021, uh, UAE was supposed to uh, uh, by the uh, U.S. Uh, fighter jet, uh, F-35. This was part of the, the deal after the Abraham Accords. But the U.S. Uh, put constraints on the, uh, on the Emiratis, saying yeah, you have to clarify your relations uh, with China. As a result, the, the negotiations were suspended because the UAE didn't want to uh, uh, comply with U.S. demands on its partnership with China. But as a result, uh, the UAE also announced that it would buy 18 uh, French uh, fighter jets. So, what's interesting is that that didn't lead UAE to uh, buy uh, Chinese fighter jets. That led UAE to choose what I think is a, a compromise. They went for a European uh, partner. It might annoy uh, Washington, but it doesn't annoy Washington as much as if it, it was uh, with China. So, What's interesting is that uh, the crisis between U.S. and Middle Eastern countries Mm -hmm. is in some way uh, benefiting uh, for uh, the uh, European countries. So that's uh, the reality. After that, as you mentioned, there's an historical dimension. European countries, and in particular France and the UK, uh, have always tried as much as possible to remain relevant in that area. This is mostly about arms sales, it's mostly about sustaining defense industries in Europe that would not be able to survive if there wasn't gold consumers. But apart from that, the diplomatic presence of those countries is a uh, decline. Uh, a country like France uh, still has emissions uh, with regards to Lebanon, but President Macron was not able Two years ago, when uh, there was the uh, three years ago when there was the uh, the explosion of the port in Lebanon, and uh, President Macron tried to uh, uh, to lead an initiative uh, to support uh, the the Lebanese, that that failed after two months, and since then there has not been uh, any new initiative. So that I think reveals also. Uh, the fact that, as, as I said, uh, sadly uh, as a European, uh, Europeans are no longer really a major player in this uh, competition.
3: Thanks John Luke. Uh, we had questions coming in online, uh, but I'd like to open it up to the floor first because you guys have taken the time and effort to come on the way here. So I guess you should have some sort of privilege to ask some questions. So. I'm opening up to those who are physically present to, to ask your questions. And I see one take up. I have, please.
0: So thank you very much for a uh, very insightful um, presentation. Um, so um, on the de- de- declining focus of the US in the region, and the increasing uh, strategic interest of the China in the region, we have seen, as Carl also mentioned, uh, an emerging architectures Regional architectures in the region. One of them is the uh, the, the one that's mediated by China to Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and on the other hand, we have uh, also, maybe as the US is playing a balance, uh, an offshore balance role uh, uh, in the region. We see probably the, the there's an expansion of the universe, the, like I the background of um so my question as these two are uh, you know um going to develop more do you think that's going to create more of alignment or division Division. Uh,
2: thank you very much Isha, uh, for the, the question it's uh, it, it's a big question. The um and that, that relates to the fact that uh, Middle Eastern countries uh, at the moment are using that competition as leverage. Uh, and you mentioned alignment, I think what the Middle Eastern countries are doing, uh, and in, in, in a way it's inspired, I would say, by India, is multi-alignment. Uh, they are trying not to side uh, with the U.S. or with China, but they will participate in any Initiative uh, that they consider maybe in their interest. Uh, so uh, UAE will uh, be part of uh, the uh, I2U2 initiative, so the uh, Israel-Israel-India-UAE-US uh, initiative. At the same time, will maintain close ties uh, with China, announcing military drills, signing a, a lot of uh, business deals, uh, and. What what's interesting is that at the moment, the U.S. is trying to maintain its leadership through these initiatives, through these uh, so-called Uh There is an element of contradiction here because the U.S. on one hand wants to reduce its presence, but at the same time uh, does not really accept uh, more agency to the regional uh, actors. So anytime uh, there's UAE, Saudi Arabia announcing the ambitions, diplomatic ambitions with China on any type of initiatives, these create anxieties in Washington. And the problem is that you cannot have it both ways. You cannot reduce your presence, expect that uh, the partners in the region will still follow your lead. Uh, no, there's. And I think the the problem is that no politician right now can uh, uh, go on a report in Washington and say, we will accept that our close partners uh, have relations with uh, China. So at the moment, uh, I think it's uh, for the the, the global actors, uh, a game of multi-alignment. They will participate in anything they can. but. I suspect this cannot last too long because a lot of these initiatives, probably historically, we we know that a lot of these initiatives tend to uh, uh, vanish when people just realize that beyond uh, ministerial meetings of one or two days where people shake hands and it's just a photo op, nothing happens. I think. At the moment, uh, there's no big conflict in the region, so uh, it's convenient. But I suspect that if we have the discussion again in uh, five years from now, things may be uh, different and the multi alignment may prove its uh, limitations. Thank you. Uh, Does anyone have a question? No, please.
1: Thank
3: you for the speech. I just have one question. Uh, in the speech you mentioned about how the US and China think like, that the US have more soft power, they have more military power, more diplomatic power over the Middle East than China does. But for some reason, the public opinion seems to really favor China over the US. So do you think there are some like other factors like uh unique to the Middle East that cause this? Or like what, what does
1: what causes public opinion to be so biased against the US and then so favorable to
2: China? I, I think it's uh it's a combination of different elements. I think it it relates to uh, the uh, the legacy of U.S. interventions in the region uh, more than uh, the, uh, the the Arab knowledge of uh, China. Uh, because uh, to be fair, I think that the, the knowledge on China is uh, limited because the Chinese presence, physical presence, cultural presence, uh, is uh, is uh, extremely limited, so uh, there is the idea that China is a benign power and it will not interfere in the region. Uh, so that that is as far as they uh, they will understand that Chinese uh, policy. And with regards to US, uh, we have to keep in mind the the fact that US interventions in the Middle East, most recently with Iran. Well, uh, or, I mean, there's a long history of U.S. interventions in the Middle East, starting in the Cold War, uh, that, that that still play a role, and that uh, that relates, for instance, to uh, uh, the Arab perception that the U.S. is completely uh, uh, biased on Palestine, that the U.S. systematically supports Israel, uh, that the U.S. has been supporting authoritarian regimes in the region historically uh and as if uh we'll be able to talk about the iranian perception the fact that uh the u.s uh toppled uh, the uh only democratic uh system that uh, was created in, the, in iran in the 50s and that still until today uh plays a role in the perception uh, so uh are we are gonna this this view is more about the legacy of U.S. interventions uh, in the region, than about uh, a strong understanding of what would be uh, what would be Chinese leadership in the region, and that's also probably the, the reason why we we cannot really we cannot look at this uh, at these uh, uh, these indicators the same way we would be able to do that for Southeast Asia, which obviously has a better knowledge,
1: culturally, historically, of uh, China's presence. Thank you again, John, for your amazing uh, presentation. The, the point that you mentioned about uh, US and Israel, rel- spatial relationship, uh, it's good that, that you mentioned that US actually recognized US-Israel uh, before, especially in the wider um, a Muslim community, Islamic community, it's a little, a little less known fact because they mostly consider Israel as a U.S. baby. It's very good that you have mentioned that. I wanted to know from you more on that. Especially, uh, you said that after 48 and mid-60s,
3: uh, you know, during 16, it started taking interest. What exactly uh, was
1: that uh, attraction that you saw in Israel uh, because of which it was
2: a change of heart,
1: if you could answer that.
2: Thank you. Well, there were several elements. They, uh, and that, that started really in the sixties. And the first president that qualified that relationship as a special relationship was Kennedy. Uh, and I think there were elements of um, ideological and uh, elements and interest uh, ideology because there was the perception, the idea that Israel is a democracy. Uh, Plus, there was uh, the the Zionist project itself, the fact that this was about creating a homeland uh, for a population that had been suffering from persecution in the Western world. So that that played a role. The fact that uh, there was a cultural tie, plus the fact that there was a a political system that uh, the U.S. would consider... Uh, compatible with its own uh, beliefs, this idea that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. And until today that plays a role. Uh, There's also an element of interest, the fact that uh, Israel was considered as uh, a stepping stone or, let's say, an anchor anchor of uh, Western interests vis-a-vis the USSR in the Middle East uh that that played a role in the fact that at that time uh the u.s considered uh it can rely on turkey it can rely on israel the arab world at that time was heavily uh supported by the u.s society uh, egypt uh under nasser was uh, was perceived as a soviet satellite it was more complex than that but the u.s perceived that uh, egypt was controlled uh, by the soviet union so Israel. There was an interest in the sense that uh, this this was a partner, not only a democratic partner, but a strategic partner. Uh, so I think that explains until today uh, this uh, uh, this partnership. Eventually, I think the the reason why until today you have such a strong commitment uh, from the U.S. To Israel, the only way, and this is a long debate, uh, we will we'll be able to discuss that when we discuss Israel, but I think it, it's also, it, it cannot be just about interest. It's about a strong belief in the uh, U.S. political establishment uh, that it's a moral obligation for uh, the U.S. to support Israel. And that's the reason there's no serious debate uh, about the um, Canceling uh, that military aid. Uh, apart from some uh, members of Congress on the left, uh, but it's a mi- minority. The majority of uh, the political establishment is uh, supportive of that uh, military commitment. And I think it's not, cannot just be explained by interest, it's about beliefs. Thank you, John. And thank you for the question from the floor. We'll try
3: to, in the interest of time, we'll try to. <laughs> Synthesize the questions that are coming in from on, from, from Zoom. So um, let me put these two questions together. That's about US policy uh, in the region. And uh, the first part to it is what kind of strategic interests will force the US's hand in terms of favoring one country over another in the region? And the second part is about uh, the difference in Middle East policy between the Biden and Trump administrations,
2: if there's I mean, Okay, uh, so very quickly, uh, and because we're running out of time, uh, the US interest, as I said, uh, it, it's about uh, first and foremost uh, security of Israel. So if there's any uh, a country that is perceived as compromising that security of Israel, uh, the US uh, at the moment uh, will, uh, will not, for instance, sell weapons or will not uh, create uh, strong ties. Uh, so that, that is uh, one of the elements. The other elements is uh, stability of the region. The U.S. at the moment is a status quo power. It is not trying to change the Middle East. It may have been this ambition uh, in the early stages of the Bush administration, but since then, it's a rather conservative uh, power trying uh to uh, maintain the status quo and that's the reason for instance they don't want iran to have weapons among other reasons but because that would completely change the balance of powers. uh the second question was related yeah, to biden and trump uh, and with regards to biden and trump the same thing about obama as i said uh the substance doesn't really change Uh, If you look at the Biden administration, in the Middle East, uh, Biden didn't uh, go back on the decision to relocate the embassy of the U.S. to Jerusalem. He didn't uh, challenge that. Uh, They may uh, at first uh, uh, consider that the Abraham Accords was a legacy of the Trump administration, so they didn't really like to talk about it. But what they are doing right now with Saudi Arabia is exactly the continuation of what Trump started. Uh, the reluctance to uh, invest on uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict and to only focus on Israel's uh, security is also something very similar to Trump. But that's, as I said, because there was already a level of continuation towards Obama. Uh, but clearly, this this is because more broadly, more deeply, there's uh, uh, a lack of interest or um, uh, a desire of the uh, U.S. policy establishment uh, to reduce its presence from the region. They just don't know how actually to uh, uh, to uh, materialize that. One final
3: question to wrap up today's discussion is a very broad one, and perhaps you just get your two cents on this. Uh, so. It's all about interest, great power interest in terms of their involvement in the Middle East and oil it was once upon a time that sought after kind of resource and became an interest by, by the great power. So what would you say is is the main interest today by the great powers,
2: or not external powers? In the business? Well, I mean, uh, and Carl uh, already uh, touched upon this, the fact that uh, there's an economic interest, obviously the, the oil, uh, the energy the dimension, the fact that we cannot ignore, uh, in today's global environment, the energy from the Middle East, even more now that, uh, the Russian, uh, markets, uh, are uh, close to a lot of, uh, countries. Uh, but in addition to that, there's a security dimension, uh, in the, uh, in the call, I think I said that in a different way, but, uh, Uh, you may not care about the Middle East, but the Middle East cares about you. Uh, And uh, usually uh, uh, we see that, we saw that uh, with uh, the um, interventions in the 2000s. The Bush administration at first, when the Bush administration arrived in Washington, they didn't want to talk about interventions in the Middle East. Bush uh, team had one uh, keyword, that was China. Uh, It was supposed to be all about China. Uh, but 9-11 happened, and then suddenly it was all about the Middle East. Uh, my, my personal uh, belief that I'm working on the Middle East, so my advice is that this will happen again. That uh, at the moment, they want as much as possible to ignore the Middle East, but there will be a regional crisis again. Uh, my bet would be on uh, a crisis with Iran. Uh, and suddenly, people will refocus on the middle. It's not because there's passion uh, for the region, unfortunately, but because of the necessity. With that, we come to the end of today's
3: session. And I thank my colleague, John Liu, for his presentation and for taking all the questions very patiently. And also, to everyone physically here for attending the session and all those online who have tuned in, thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing you next Thursday again for lecture number two, which is on Iran and uh, Arab relations, a regional alignment, presented by my colleague sitting there alongside someone from someone based in Italy as well. So John Lu will return uh, for another episode, but that will be after the second lecture. So see you then. And thank you very much.